Chapter Twenty of Brigands of the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. Brigands of the Moon by Ray Cummings. Chapter Twenty. Moonlight upon Earth so gently shines to make romantic a lover smile, but the reality of the lunar night is cold beyond human belief, cold and darkly silent, grim desolation, awesome, majestic a frowning majesty that even to the most intrepid human beholder is inconceivably forbidding and there were humans here now on this tumbled plain between archimedes and the mountains one small crater amid the million of its fellows was distinguished this night by the presence of humans the grantline camp it huddled in the deepest purple shadows on the side of a bowl-like pit a crudely circular orifice with a scant two miles across its rippling rim there was faint light here to mark the presence of the living intruders the blue-glow radiance of the moral tube-lights under a spread of glassite. The Grantline camp stood midway up, one of the inner cliff walls of the little crater. The broken, rock-strewn floor, two miles wide, lay five hundred feet below the camp. A broad level shelf hung midway up the cliff, and upon it, Grantline had built his little group of glassite dome shelters. Viewed from above, there was the darkly purple crater floor, the upflung circular rim where the earth-light tinged the spires and crags with yellow sheen and on the shelf, like a huddled group of birds' nests, Grantline's domes hung and gazed down upon the inner valley. The air here on the moon's surface was negligible, a scant one-five-thousandth of the atmospheric pressure at the sea level on Earth, but within the glassite shelter a normal Earth pressure must be maintained. Rigidly braced double walls to withstand the explosive tendency, with no external pressure to counteract it. A tremendous necessity for mechanical equipment had burdened Grantline's small ship to capacity, the chemistry of manufactured air, the pressure equalizers, renewers, respirators, the lighting and temperature maintenance of a space flyer was here. There was this Grantline building, stretched low and rectangular along the front edge of the ledge. Within it were living rooms, mess hall, and kitchen. Fifty feet behind it, connected by a narrow passage of glassite, was a similar though smaller structure. The mechanical control rooms, with their humming, vibrating mechanisms, were here, and an instrument room with signaling apparatus, senders, receivers, mirror grids and audiophones of several varieties, and an electro-telescope, small but modern, with dome overhead like a little earth observatory. From this instrument building, beside the connecting pedestrian passage, wire cables for light and air tubes and strings and bundles of instrument wires ran to the main structure, gray snakes upon the porous gray lunar rock. The third building seemed to lean to banked against the cliff wall, a slanting shed wall of glassite, fifty feet high and two hundred in length. Under it, for months, Grantline's bores had dug into the cliff. Braced tunnels were here, penetrating back and downward into the vein of rock. The work was over. The bores had been dismantled and packed away. At one end of the cliff, the mining equipment lay piled in a litter. There was a pile of discarded ore where Grantline had carted and dumped it after his first crude refining process had yielded it as waste. The ore slag, like gray powder flakes, strewn down the cliff. Trucks and ore carts along the ledge stood discarded, mute evidence of the weeks and months of work these helmeted miners had undergone, struggling upon this airless, frowning world. But now all that was finished. The catalytic ore was sufficiently concentrated. It lay, this treasure, in a seventy-foot pile behind the glassite lean-to, with a cage of wires over it and an insulation barrage hiding its presence. The ore shelter was dark, the other two buildings were lighted, and there were small lights mounted at intervals about the camp and along the edge of the ledge. A spider ladder, with tiny platforms some twenty feet one above the other, hung precariously to the cliff face. It descended the five hundred feet to the crater floor, 
and behind the camp it mounted the jagged cliff face to the upper rim height, where an observatory platform was placed. Such was the outer aspect of the Grantline treasure camp near the beginning of this lunar night, when, unknown to Grantline and his men, the planetara with its brigands was approaching. The night was perhaps a sixth advanced, full night, no breath of cloud to mar the brilliant starry heavens. The quadrant earth hung poised like a giant mellow moon over Grantline's crater. A bright earth, yet no air was here on this lunar surface to spread its light, only a glow mingling with spots of blue tube light on the poles along the cliffs, and the radiance from the lighted buildings. No evidence of movement showed about the silent camp. Then a pressure door in an end of the main building opened its tiny series of locks. A bent figure came out. The lock closed. The figure straightened and gazed about the camp. Grotesque bloated semblance of a man, helmeted with rounded dome hood, suggestion of an ancient sea-diver, yet goggled and trunked like a gas-masked fighter of the twentieth century. He stopped presently and disconnected metal weights which were upon his shoes. Then he stood erect again, and with giant strides bounded along the cliff. Fantastic figure in the blue-lit gloom. A child's dream of crags and rocks and strange lights with a single monstrous figure and seven league boots. He went the length of the ledge with his twenty-foot strides, inspected the lights and made adjustments, came back and climbed with agile, bounding steps up the spider-ladder to the dome of the crater-top. A light flashed on up there, then it was extinguished. The goggled, bloated figure came leaping down after a moment, Grantline's exterior watchman making his rounds. He came back to the main building, fastened the weight on his shoes, signaled. The lock opened, the figure went inside. It was early evening, after the dinner hour and before the time of sleep according to the camp routine, Grantline was maintaining. 9 p.m. of Earth Eastern American time, recorded now upon his Earth chronometer. In the living room of the main building, Johnny Grantline sat with a dozen of his men dispersed about the room, whiling away as best they could the lonesome hours. "'All as usual, this cursed moon, when I get home, if I ever do.' "'Say your say, Wilkes, but you'll spend your share of the gold leaf "'and thank your constellations that you had your chance to make it. "'Let him alone. Come on, Wilkes, take a hand here. "'This game is not any good with three. "'The man who had been outside flung his hissing helmet recklessly to the floor "'and unsealed his suit. "'Here, get me out of this. No, I won't play. "'I can't play your cursed game with nothing at stake.' "'A laugh went up at the sharp look Johnny Grantline flung "'from where he sat reading in a corner of the room.' Commander's orders, no gambling gold leafers tolerated here. "'Play the game, Wilkes,' Grantline said quietly. "'We all know it's infernal, this doing nothing.' "'He's been struck by earthlight,' another man laughed. "'Commander, I told you not to let that guy Wilkes out at night.' "'A rough but good-natured lot of men, "'jolly and raucous by nature in their leisure hours. "'But there was too much leisure here now. "'Their mirth had a hollow sound. "'In older times, explorers of the frozen polar zones "'had to cope with their inactivity, loneliness and despair.' but at least they were on their native world. The grimness of the moon was eating into the courage of Grantline's men. An unreality here, a weirdness. These fantastic crags, the deadly silence, the night almost two weeks of earth time in length, congealed by the deadly frigidity of space. The days of black sky, blazing stars, and flaming sun, with no atmosphere to diffuse the sun's heat radiating so swiftly from the naked lunar surface that the outer temperature still was cold. And day and night, always the beloved earth disk hanging poised up near the zenith, from thinnest crescent to full earth, then back to crescent, all so abnormal, irrational, disturbing to human senses. With the mining work over, an irritability grew upon Grantline's men, and perhaps, since the human mind is so wonderful, elusive a thing, there lay upon these men an indefinable sense of disaster. Johnny Grantline felt it. He thought about it now as he sat in the room corner, watching Wilkes being forced into the plagiat game, and he found the premonition strong within him. 
unreasonably ominous depression. Barring the accident which had disabled his little spaceship when they reached this small crater hole, his expedition had gone well. His instruments and the information he had from the former explorers had enabled him to pick up the catalyst vein with only one month of search. The vein had now been exhausted, but the treasure was here, enough to supply every need on his earth. Nothing was left but to wait for the planetara. The men were talking of that now. She ought to be, well, midway from Ferrakshan by now. When do you figure she'll be back here and signal us? Twenty days, give her another five now to Mars and five in port. That's ten. We'll pick her signals in three weeks, mark me. Three weeks, just give me three weeks of reasonable sunrise and sunset. This cursed moon. You mean William's next daylight? Ha, he's inventing a lunar language. He'll be a moon man yet. Olaf Swenson, the big blond fellow from the Scandia fjords, came and flung himself down beside Grantline. I think they been without enough to do, Commander. Three weeks isn't very long, Ole. No, maybe not. From across the room somebody was saying, If the comet hadn't smashed on us, damn me, but I'd ask the Commander to let some of us take her back. Shut up, Billy. She is smashed. You all agreed to things as they are, Johnny said shortly. We all took the same chances, voluntarily. A dynamic little fellow, this Johnny Grantline. Short of temper sometimes, but always just, and a perfect leader of men. In stature he was almost as small as Snap. But he was thick-set, with a smooth-shaven, keen-eyed, square-jawed face, and a shock of brown, tousled hair. A man of thirty-five, though the decision of his manner, the quiet dominance of his voice, made him seem older. He stood up now, surveying the blue-lit, glass-light room with its low ceiling close overhead. He was bow-legged. In movement he seemed to roll with a stiff-legged gait, like some sea-captains of former days on the deck of his swaying ship. Odd-looking figure, heavy flannel shirt and trousers, boots heavily weighted, and bulky metal-loaded belt strapped about his waist. He grinned at Swenson. When the time comes to divide this treasure, everyone will be happy, all. The treasure was estimated to be the equivalent of ninety millions in gold leaf, a hundred and ten millions in the gross as it now stood with twenty millions to be deducted by the federated refiners for reducing it to the standard purity for commercial use. Ninety millions, with only a million and a half to come off for expedition expenses, and the planetaria share another million. A nice little stake. Grantline strode across the room with his rolling gait. Cheer up, boys. Who's winning here? I say you fellows. An audiophone buzzer interrupted him, a call from the duty man in the instrument room of the nearby building. Grantline clicked the receiver. The room fell into silence. Any call was unusual. Nothing ever happened here in the camp. The duty man's voice sounded over the room. Signals coming, not clear. Will you come over, Commander? Signals? It was never Grantline's way to enforce needless discipline. He offered no objection when every man in the camp rushed through the connecting passages. They crowded the instrument room where the tense duty man sat, bending over his radio receivers. The mirrors were swaying. The duty man looked up and met Grantline's gaze. I ran it up to the highest intensity, Commander. We ought to get it. Low scale, Peter? Yes, weakest infrared. I'm bringing it up, and even though it uses too much of our power... Get it, said Grantline shortly. I got one slight television swing a minute ago, then it faded. I think it's the Planetara. Planetara? The crowding group of men chorused. How could it be the Planetara? But it was. The call came in presently. Unmistakably the Planetara turned back now from her course to Ferrick Shan. How far away, Peter? The duty man consulted the needles of his dial scale. Close, very weak infrared, but close. Around thirty thousand miles, maybe. It's Snap Dean calling. The Planetara here within thirty thousand miles. Excitement and pleasure swept the room. The Planetara had for so long been awaited eagerly. The excitement communicated to Crantline. It was unlike him to be incautious. 
yet now with no thought save that some unforeseen and pleasing circumstance had brought the planetara ahead of time incautious grantline certainly was raise the barrage i'll go my suit is here a willing volunteer rushed out to the shed can you send peter grantline demanded yes with more power use it johnny dictated the message of his location which we received in his incautious excitement he ignored the secret code an interval passed no message came from us just snap's routine signal in the weak infrared which we hoped grantline would not get the men crowding grantline's instrument room waited in tense silence then grantline tried the television again its current weakened the lights with the drain upon the distributors and cooled the room with a sudden deadly chill as the errant's insulating system slowed down the duty man looked frightened he'll bulge out our walls commander the internal pressure we'll chance it they picked up the image of the planetara it shone clear on the grid the segment of starfield with a tiny cigar-shaped blob clear enough to be unmistakable the planetara here now over the moon almost directly overhead poised at what the altimeter scale showed to be a fraction under thirty thousand miles the men gazed in odd silence the planetara coming but the altimeter needle was motionless the planetara was hanging poised a sudden gasp went about the room the men stood with whitening faces gazing at the planetara's image and at the altimeter's needle it was moving now the planetara was descending but not with an orderly swoop the grid showed the ship clearly the bow tilted up then dipped down but then in a moment it swung up again the ship turned partly over righted itself then swayed again drunkenly the watching men were stricken in horrified silence the planetara's image momentarily horribly grew larger swaying then turning completely over rotated slowly end over end the planetara out of control was falling end of chapter twenty